So we're a couple of days into the retreat now, two or three days of practice under your belt for most of you. And things are starting to happen. Things are starting to change, whether you realize it or not. So at this point, you know, the couple of days of silence, of sincere practice, uh, making our best effort, just doing the best we can to follow the instructions, slogging through all the difficulties, continuing to show up as best we can, uh, it's actually impossible <laughs> that things have not shifted in the mind, that the faculties, the factors, the qualities of mind that are active and guiding the mind now, uh, it's impossible that those not be different, that there not be a different balance, a different um, mixture, a different recipe of ingredients in the mind now than when you first got here. Some of you have been reporting in the small groups that you're, you're very aware of this. Uh, already at this point, some of you uh, can see that you're seeing things in a very different way. Uh, some of you are convinced that it's not working at all. <laughs> But actually, it doesn't matter whether you think it's working or not. Uh, that's our job. <laughs> it's to, to tell you that it is, to bear witness that things really are happening, that they're, they're bound to. So we've gotten more quiet, we've gotten more sensitive, and whether we realize it or not, we're starting to th- see things in a different way, in a different way than we normally do. We're starting to see, if nothing else, just simply more of what's going on in the mind and the body. There's there's just bound to be more moments of awareness. And again, it may not feel like a lot, but it's impossible that there not be. We're making so much effort (laughs) to try to be aware. We're bound to see more. We may not like what we're seeing, but we're bound to see more of it. We're bound to see more detail, more nuance of what's going on, not constantly, but at times, catching little things here and there that we don't normally catch, that we don't normally have the sensitivity to pick up on. And we start to also see more connections, to make more connections, to see more about how our experience is unfolding, how the mind uh, influences the body, how the body influences the mind, how thoughts influence feelings, how feelings generate sensations in the body, all of those connections in the flow of mind and body processes that, again, we just simply aren't usually attuned to. And, again, we may not like what we're seeing, but we're seeing it. So there's a lot more that we're picking up on now in these different kinds of ways than we normally do. And this is really what we mean by vipassana. Some of you are very familiar with that term. For some of you, it might be new. So this term vipassana that comes out of the the Pali language, which is the language that the the body of teachings, this tradition is mostly based on, were recorded in. And the the literal meaning of that word is different seeing, seeing differently, the different pasana, seeing, different seeing. So seeing things in a different way, seeing our experience in a different way, seeing ourselves in a different way. This is Vipassana. This is what we come here to do, is to uh, practice to see things in a different way from how we normally perceive what's going on. Mostly, uh, we live in a world of concept. We live in a thought-constructed world. Uh, This also has a name in Pali. It's called Panyati. Panyati. Panyati is um, what's sometimes called relative reality, Uh, conventional reality, and then it's kind of our everyday reality that we inhabit. Um, Sometimes it's called consensual reality, in that it's the reality that we kind of all agree on, more or less, not entirely, but we we kind of have shared ideas, shared concepts about where we are, who we are, you know, what we're each doing, who we are in relationship to each other, all those kinds of things, which allows us really to function as human families, societies, communities, civilizations. The term that I, that I personally find most helpful in the context of practice is conceptual reality, because that's very straightforward. It just points to what it's made up of, concepts, all of our ideas about everything. 
So this is what we might call our conceptual model of the world, our conceptual framework for, the, for life, for existence, for ourselves. And really we construct this whole level of reality out of thoughts, out of ideas, out of concepts. Everything that we're used to thinking of as our, ourselves, our own identity, the world we live in, our environment, everything. It's pretty much all constructed out of ideas, bit by bit. Those of us that have uh, raised children or spent time around children, seen them grow, um, or we might remember it even from our own experience, uh, some of us, uh, we see how that conceptual reality is built kind of one block at a time, one Lego at a time. (laughs) So, you know, the early concepts come, you know, it's, it's a while before that concept of self, an individual self arises. That's not there immediately from the beginning. That has to be learned, that has to be taught. The, the concepts of other, you know, that's mom, that's dad, <laughs> you know, that's not there initially, that has to be learned. And then we kind of go from there, the parts of the body, the different colors, the letters of the alphabet, uh, words, and, you know, the, the concepts, the ideas get more complicated, more sophisticated, more elaborate, you know, until we arrive at adulthood with a a very complex, very sophisticated conceptual model of the world that allows us to navigate within it. So it's not that it's not useful, but it's a constructed reality. It's it's not something that's innate. It's built little by little by little. And for each of us, it will be very individual, depending on our conditioning, depending on the environment that surrounded us, dependent on many factors, many causes and conditions. We each end up with our own Really, you know, although there's hopefully overlap, <laughs> really our own conceptual worlds that we inhabit. And most of us, by the time that we get here to a retreat like this, we've probably encountered this idea somewhere, right, in our philosophy class or the online talks <laughs> that we've listened to or whatever, this, this idea that uh, ordinary reality is really thought-constructed, concept-constructed. And it's certainly not unique to Buddhism, this idea, this view of life. Um, you know, it's found in many spiritual, philosophical traditions throughout the ages, going all the way back to ancient times. Um, there's a famous Edgar Allan Poe poem that has the line, all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. <laughs> and you know, human beings throughout history, since we've had these big brains that can think, there's also been you know, those of us that have the ability to, to reflect back on what that mind is doing and to see and get some inkling, at least, just how thought-constructed our ordinary reality is. And the Buddha was one of a long, you know, tradition of great spiritual seekers, teachers that realized this in a, in a very deep way. The classic Buddhist metaphor for... Um, the level of conceptual reality is that it's said to be like a mirage or like a rainbow. Uh, I was actually over at a a local farm. Some of you may know Carter Stevens Farm, which is just a couple miles away from here. Um, They have a nice place where you can go and get barbecue, and there's usually a band playing on weekends, but don't worry about that right now. You guys can (laughs) check that out another time. But... um, Set that one aside. Um, but there's, there's a spot on this farm um, when you first drive in that's kind of up on a local um, high spot. And with all those, those waves of rain that we were getting at the beginning of the retreat, I was over there one night and just the, the, the front of the rain was moving through at just the right angle and this, it was evening so the sun was at just the right angle, you know, if you know the physics of rainbows. <laughs> and there was this amazing full arc rainbow stretching from one side of the horizon over to the other. It's actually a double rainbow at times where you could see two arcs. Um, just a whole rainbow and everybody, you know, poured out to this one spot to watch it and take pictures and selfies <laughs> and all that kind of thing. And it was there for like maybe about 10 minutes or so and then it all just disappeared because there's such a wide view of the horizon you could see it just disintegrate, fall apart, conditions changed. So relative reality, conceptual reality is said to be like this, the classic metaphor. Conditions come together, all the factors of our lives, our circumstances, our our decisions, choices we've made, everything that's shaped us and we end up with this particular rainbow that's our conceptual framework for the world. 
then conditions change, and we also see this as we go through our lives. Those of us that are a little later on in our lives, we see how our ideas uh, evolve, how they transform. We may be at a place now in our lives where our ideas about certain things are very different than they were when we were uh, a younger version of ourselves. This is a a famous teaching from uh, a second century text, a Mahayana text called the Samadhi Raja Sutra. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake, though to that lake the moon has never traveled. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that reverberates from music, sounds, or weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician conjures illusions of horses, oxen, carts, and other things, nothing is as it appears. So as we get more quiet and more mindful, we become more continuously aware, we do start to see uh, behind the rainbow, beyond the rainbow beneath the concepts, beyond the concepts, to a different level of reality, a more fundamental level of reality, what's sometimes called absolute reality, which sounds a bit daunting. Um, So the term that I like for it is empirical reality, as opposed to conceptual reality, which again, really points to how we experience it, how we know it. So the term empirical in science means something that can be directly observed. This appeals to the scientist in me, empirical reality. This is um, what can be directly observed or measured. It's something that uh, instruments can pick up on or detect. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, it means that that's what we can, as instruments, directly detect through our senses. It's what our instruments can pick up on through the senses of a human being. So these are the realities, the, the experiences, the level of reality that we can, we can know for sure. We can actually know this very clearly and with a great degree of trust and confidence because it's what we can actually see for ourselves without any intermediary level of concepts to interpret, to explain. And when we look, we find that this is a relatively limited set of things that fall into this level of empirical reality. So there's our our physical experience, which is everything that comes in through our nervous system and our sense organs, everything that our nervous systems can pick up on, all of the various sensations that we feel in our bodies, whether they're internally generated or externally generated, the whole sense of, of touch, the tactile field we can know directly. And then there's seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling, which are known through their respective sense organs to the extent that they're functioning. Um, And that's pretty much it, right? (laughs) Anybody found anything else? And that's pretty much all that goes on in the body, right? There's the tactile sense, feeling through the nerve endings, what the, the flesh receives, and then there's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, what they pick on, pick up on. And that's it. So it's, it's really pretty straightforward <laughs> physical experience. Uh, that's all that's going on. So that's kind of our easy entry point into picking up on, beginning to tune into empirical reality. So that's why we usually start with grounding the awareness in the body. It's the easiest place to start to connect with what the actual momentary experience is. But then, as we all know, there's also the dimension of our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our minds, which is is very different from everything that we can know with our minds. So this is where it gets a little tricky for most of us. So the the content, the meaning, the storyline of our mental activity, that's in the realm of conceptual reality that belongs to the world of concepts. That's where the world of concepts is generated, is within the content, within the story of what the mind generates. But the absolute reality of the mind is just the direct experience of our mental processes themselves, just as they are in the moment. 
experiencing them as they are in the moment, as a present moment experience. So what it feels like to think, which can be, it's a little hard to describe that, but there's a certain feeling to the process, the experience of thinking. What it feels like to remember, or what the experience of our emotions actually are. Not the idea of the emotions, but the actual experience in the mind of that texture, that flavor, that quality of mind that goes with our emotional life, rather than the stories that they're connected with or giving rise to. So this is, the mind's a little bit more subtle, it's a little bit more difficult to tune into the empirical reality of the mind. So that's, that, that part of it tends to come little by little. We expand into being able to connect with the empirical reality of the mind. Just little glimpses usually at first. You know, maybe we're sitting and we just catch a little snippet of a thought that comes through the mind and we really see, oh, that was a thought, rather than getting drawn into the content. And then little by little, that capacity to just rest in thinking as a process happening in the present moment, that grows. So over and over again in his teachings, in all of the Buddhist teachings, he was really um, pointing us, instructing us on how to tune into this empirical level of reality. Many different teachings. You know, the Buddha was really a master teacher that's said to be one of the, the wonderful qualities of the Buddha. There's traditional reflections on all the wonderful qualities of the Buddha meant to inspire joy. Um, but one of them is just what uh, an unexcelled teacher he was, that he was so skilled in uh, offering teachings that could point us just right to where we needed to look to be able to see this level of empirical reality, to point out to us just what it was that we needed to pick up on. And he, he had this great skill, it said, to, to know just what each person needed. You know, he, he, you would present yourself before him and he'd be able to see, oh yes, this teaching, this approach is just right for this person. And somebody else might come and he'd give them a different instruction, just a, a different perspective on the same teaching, the same reality that would be more in accord with their, their temperament, their conditioning. So we do the best we can here. <laughs> we don't quite have that level of skill. But, you know, we, we have the support of the lineage, you know, which, which I'm incredibly grateful when I reflect. So it all began with perhaps this one historical being or some maybe some small community of beings that really uh, saw with, with wisdom, saw with vipassana, with this different way of seeing what was really going on in the mind and the body. And they developed techniques, they developed uh, uh, what we, people sometimes we call this meditative technology that's really so sophisticated in the Buddhist tradition, different ways of applying the mind, developing helpful faculties of mind. And they pass those on to another generation, and they pass those on to another generation. So there's this long lineage of you know, one generation of human beings after another practicing these this, in this tradition, practicing these skills, practicing uh, this path to freedom, and then sharing out of a spirit of generosity, out of a spirit of kindness, so that it's come down to us today, and we have it available to us. And as, as we continue to practice, it's not only for our own benefit, but to preserve these teachings in the world and to ensure that they continue to be available and, and continue to be more widely available to a broader and broader communities so that as many of us as possible can benefit and experience the benefits of wisdom. So the, this practice is very simple. You know, we, we always say this, this practice is, is really extremely simple, just simply stepping out of conceptual reality and tuning into empirical reality. Easy, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Simple, yes. Easy, not so much. Um, which, which sometimes baffles us, you know. We, we can hear the teachings. Some of us, we've been hearing the teachings for a long time <laughs> in many different places from many different teachings and, and teachers. And they, they make sense intellectually, but it's still hard to do. You know, we may have been on a lot of retreats and still we come here and at the beginning the mind is not cooperative, <laughs> you know. It, it has to be cajoled, it has to be comforted, it has to be, you know, soothed and uh, little by little brought into alignment with our aspirations. So one of the reasons that it's, um, 
but it is difficult. It's difficult for us to make this transition from conceptual reality to um, empirical reality is because of a factor that's of mind that's called perception. Perception, this has a a particular technical meaning in the the Buddhist psychology and the description of, of how the mind works and what it does. So our minds are very conditioned, they're really evolved to exercise continuously this faculty of perception. And perception is that faculty of mind that uh, mushes everything together. That's the, the, not the technical description, <laughs> that's, that's how I think of it. It mushes all the various strands of experience together. It glues them all together. It takes all of the various phenomena that are happening in any given moment, that are happening in a series of moments, and it tries to generalize. It's the conceptualizing function of mind. It tries to recognize, it tries to identify. And the effect of perception is that it ends up mushing together you know, the, all the physical sensations, everything going on in the mental activity, how they're changing from moment to moment. It ends up mushing all of that together into these very compact, dense bundles of experience, which it then generalizes as whatever it generalizes them as, me. That's a, that's a popular one. It likes to, to generalize things as that. <laughs> and other things as well. And then those, those um, abstractions, those collections, those uh, composites of many, many different elements of experience are what we get used to, to tuning into because it, it makes it much easier to function in the world <laughs> and that all of those conceptual contra- constructs really are helpful. But we fall into ignorance and this is the, the technical definition of ignorance. Uh, ignorance in the Buddhist sense that we talk about it isn't just any kind of ignorance. You know, it's like, it's not knowing how to do algebra. <laughs> you know, that's not what the Buddha was talking about. It's specifically this ignorance of not understanding what the, mind, the conceptual mind's getting up to not seeing that process, not understanding how conceptual reality is being constructed or even that it is being constructed so that we get fooled and we believe, we fall into believing, we fall into ignorance, uh, believing that conceptual reality is really the only game in town, that that's where it is, that's the truth in some ultimate kind of way. So it can be very hard when there's so much conditioning uh, around uh, conceptual reality to keep us glued to it. It can be very hard to make that transition, to take that step back, to let the concepts relax, let the faculty of perception relax, and to come more into alignment with empirical reality. So we mostly just completely miss this level of our lives, the empirical level of our lives. And the faculty of perception is, is very useful. I and mean, this is one of the reasons we get so stuck in it. I and mean, it's very helpful to be able to recognize each other, to be able to know where we live, to be able to get to our jobs, to remember how the car works. You know, we, if we have a, a partner that we live with, we get in bed at night, they're, they're next to us and we recognize them. We know who they are. We wake up the next morning, we still recognize them. We know who they are. This is very useful, all of this. Um, and probably all of us have had a chance to see, you know, people in our lives that are older, that have had injuries, the, the faculty of perception uh, starts to break down. There's not the ability to recognize, there's not the ability to operate on the level of conceptual reality. So, the, so conceptual reality is, is very, very useful. It's not that there's, there's any uh, condemnation of conceptual reality or that we in any way want to escape conceptual reality. Uh, or uh, that we need to get away from it in order to be free of it. But just simply that we need to understand it and recognize it for what it is. There's a great story that um, I think I read in an article years ago about, I won't get it exactly right, but um, like there was a, a big international Buddhist conference talking about the, the dukkha of <laughs> international Buddhist conferences. Um, and uh, some people had arranged for like a, a, one of the top Zen masters and one of the top Theravada masters from this tradition to meet and to have some conversation around their understanding of awakening and to, to see what kind of common ground they could find or, you know, just what came out of that. 
So the, the two masters were brought together with their translators, and the, the Zen master opened with a, a beginning gambit. So he pulled a, an orange out of his bag and held it up and, and addressed the Theravada master. What is this? What is this? Has anybody here ever done Zen practice? <laughs> I did a little bit of this, this, this working with koans. I, I don't want to diss the Zen people. It's, it's a very interesting way to work. But, um, but so this is how the Zen master opened, in, in the way that he would kind of normally begin with, with a student, you know, putting out, presenting this initial koan. And the translators talked back and forth. It was conveyed to the, the Theravada master who just sat there and didn't respond. So again, the Zen master comes with the orange. What is this? What is this? You know, this went on for a while, and at a certain point, the, the Theravada master uh, turned to his translator, and the message came back to the, the Zen master. What's the matter with him? Doesn't he know what an orange is? <laughs> so I think this is such a great teaching story because it, you know, it speaks to these two levels, um, that, that an understanding of both of these levels is, is necessary for us really to be able to navigate in the world and to understand clearly what's going on. You know, yes... There's more to the orange than that name orange. You know, that's not what, that doesn't encapsulate the whole reality of this round, orange, juicy object. Uh, but then again, we're living in the world, and when we want to go to the store, we ask for an orange. <laughs> you know, that's, both of those can coexist with complete uh, harmony. There's not actually any conflict or tension there. So what we're learning through the practice is not to somehow escape or, or discard or let go of conceptual reality, but just to complete the picture, that there's more to the story. So we use concepts to help us to get closer to empirical reality. This is, this is, we, we need that support at first in the practice to help us to understand just what we're doing. So a lot of um, the teachings, for example, when we, right now, I'm, just, I'm sitting up here, I'm talking, uh, using a lot of concepts, you're understanding me through the lens of conceptual reality, con- uh, consensual reality, hopefully we have enough overlap, you can actually understand what I'm saying, all of that's very useful. In our own practice, just as we're working uh, with our own mind, we might remind ourselves to bring in some noting, labeling when it's helpful or other kinds of skillful means that help to conceptualize the actual experience in a way that helps us to connect with it. So we use concepts. We use concepts in, the, in our spiritual practice as a way of helping us to connect with the empirical, empirical practice. And I wanted to just briefly mention a couple or maybe a few, depending on how much time there is of these, that, that I've found particularly helpful. So the first one I want to mention is the, the teaching on what's called the four great elements, which are uh, earth, water, fire, and air. So this is another way of connecting with the body. So if we look into the body, what are the experiences that can arise in the body? So this is within the tactile sense. So just within what we pick up with our nervous, nervous systems within the flesh. So it said that, um, this, this again comes out of kind of ancient understandings of physics, but the Buddha took it and kind of turned it around and applied it to our meditative experience, empirical experience. So the earth element is what we might think of in modern terms as mass. So this is the, the quality that we all share as physical beings of having uh, stuff, <laughs> that we're made out of stuff. Um, which we don't tend to so much think about. We're made out of matter. So as uh, beings that are inhabiting uh, physical bodies made of matter, we experience qualities of heaviness, hardness, uh, roughness, smoothness, or on the other end of the spectrum, we may experience lightness, the, the lighter end of the mass spectrum. So we might experience the earth element as heaviness on the one hand, or lightness. We might experience it as hardness or as softness, kind of anything that we might feel in, that has to do with just the, the stuff of the body. So as we're sitting, we can feel this, and you might check this out for yourself just right now. So where the bottom is on con- in contact with whatever we're sitting on, usually we can feel the earth element. So you might just close the eyes for a second and see if you can connect with that. Is there a feeling 
of hardness. There may be some areas of hardness, some areas of softness. There might be a sense of the, the weight of the body pushing down on the seat. Or it might also feel light at times, like there, there's hardly any contact there. Sometimes we might even feel like we're floating up a little bit off the cushion. It can be any of those, anything on the spectrum from heavy and hard to soft and light. And we don't need to go fishing around for this. So you can open the eyes again. We can, we can uh, pick up on this very easily. There's no deep investigation that has to happen. <laughs> it's not anything we have to go searching for. If we just direct the attention into the, into the flesh, into the body, then we can feel. There's hard spots, there's soft spots, light spots, heavy spots. So this is the earth element. The second element of fire is what we might think of as um, temperature. It's thermodynamic energy. <laughs> so again, all matter, whether it's our bodies, other beings' bodies, uh, whether it's a rock, whether it's a tree, whether it's a star, planet, everything in the universe has a temperature. Somewhere between really, really cold and really, really hot. <laughs> And there's kind of, the, we can relate to that on a conceptual level, but we can actually directly experience that. We can experience temperature in the body. This is one of the dimensions of our physical experience. So again, you can check this out right now. And the, the bottom, again, makes a, <laughs> a good uh, place to check this out. But some, you might also check if the hands are touching someplace, touching each other, touching the body somewhere else. Not fishing around for anything, but just, what's the temperature? Warm, probably, <laughs> maybe cool in some spots where the air is touching. Places where there's a lot of pressing, like in the seat, there may be quite a strong sensation of heat in the sit bones. Can we find any place on the body that feels cool right now? So again, this is, this is very easy, very accessible, just tuning into the dimension of temperature. The next element is the air element, which uh, is one that we all work with a lot, or many of us work with a lot. The air element is what we might think of as kinetic energy or movement. So these are all the sensations having to do with, on the one end, movement, and on the other end, lack of movement. So on the movement end, it could be pulsation, throbbing, vibration, uh, the movement of the abdomen as we breathe, the movement of the legs as we walk, any kind of moving of the body. On the other end of the spectrum, it can be the lack of movement. So times that we're experiencing tension, stiffness, immobility, those kinds of sensations, those are the other end of the, the air element spectrum. So this one's very easy, hopefully, to pick up on by now if we just let the attention settle into the body, probably at this point, you know, we feel that movement of the breath. We might notice other movements as well in the hands. Oftentimes, if we let the attention rest there, we feel some tingling, also the air element. Some of us might feel pulsation, from the circulation of the blood. Lots of ways that the air element can manifest in the body. The fourth element is the the water element, which is uh, a little harder to get uh, a read on. It's sometimes called cohesion, liquidity. So if we think of water, it has this quality of binding things together of flowing. So uh, the, quali- the, the water element we experience in terms of how other, the other elements are moving through the body or how they're collected in the body. So we might be feeling heat, which is the fire element, but, and maybe it's very, very concentrated in just a small area. 
that's the water element that's holding it together. We say that's, that's uh, coagulating it or, or condensing it into that one spot. Or it may be more diffuse. So the water element is that the feeling of sensations being uh, either very compact, collected together, uh, molded together like a lump of clay, or being more like dust, more diffuse, more scattered through the body. So these are the four great elements. And I've, I've personally found this teaching really helpful, this, this uh, conceptual framework for tuning into the body, picking up on the body, very helpful. Um, if nothing else, because it helps to just really depersonalize it. <laughs> I really like uh, thinking about this body that I inhabit as just, you know, another lump of stuff. <laughs> helps to really break down the attachment to the body. And if we think about it, this is really the truth. You know, there's not a great deal of difference between this physical body we're inhabiting and, you know, a spoonful or shovelful of dirt we might dig up from the the yard here or, you know, a rock sitting out in the forest. It's all made out of the same stuff. And, you know, if we've been around in the presence of a body that the life has gone out of, you know, this becomes really clear. You know, the, the, the life, the, the mentality aspect, the mental experience comes to an end in that particular body and when what's left. A lump of stuff, you know, just like any other stuff out in the universe, matter, just stuff. So, you know, these properties of mass, of temperature, of movement that are experienced within this body, they're the same as are experienced in all other matter around us. They really, these bodies really unite us uh, we are really, you know, literally part and parcel of this this physical world. Matter comes in, matter goes out. <laughs> you know, it's, the cells are constantly turning over and changing. Nutrients coming in, waste products are going out. So, so uh, relating to the body in this way can really help us to cut through all of those big um, attachments that we can get into around the body, all the big bugaboos we can get into around the body, that it has to be a certain way, or it's not doing what we want, or we really like it how it is, or we don't like it how it is, or, you know, I need to do this, that, or the other to, to improve it, to make it better. Not that we shouldn't care for the body, you know, this is our vehicle. But it really, I've really found it helpful to just relax, <laughs> you know, relax around the body. It's just stuff and we can really experience it directly to know the true nature of the body through meditation. So this is one helpful conceptual framework. Another aspect of experience that I found it really helpful to tune into is what's um, called Vedana in the Pali language, uh, which is usually translated as feeling tone. which is a horribly vague and uh, meaningless term. <laughs> and the reason it's usually translated that way, which I find fascinating, is that we have no word for this dimension of experience in English. Like that in itself explains a lot <laughs> of our delusion and ignorance. There's no word for this uh, field of Vedana, which is ubiquitous and incredibly powerful in our lives. And this is the pleasure-pain dimension of life. Like, what do we call it to experience pleasure or pain? We just don't have a word for it in English. It boggles the mind. But in Pali, this very, you know, technically precise language, there's a word for, for uh, the experience of feeling pleasure, pain, or anywhere in between, experiencing the pleasure-pain spectrum, which is continuous. We are always experiencing something on the pleasure-pain spectrum, and yet we have no word for it. We need to make one up. I usually just use Vedana because I'm... There has to be a word for it. <laughs> it's always happening. And we can, we can see this too as we sit. Uh, is there any moment that you've been able to find where you have not had some sense, some feeling tone, some felt sense of the experience being somewhere on that spectrum? You know, it's, at times it's intensely unpleasant, at times it's intensely pleasant, and then there's all these many, you know, infinite gradations in between. At times it's in the middle, very neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant, but still there's that sense of whether or not we like it, or how much or, how much or not we like it. 
And um, the Buddha and the Buddhist psychology is actually spot on with, with modern science with regard to the experience of pleasure and pain. It happens in the reptilian brain. Some of you guys know a lot more about this than I do, I'm sure. Um, but the modern research shows that um, the, the reptilian brain, the old brain, decides whether an experience is pleasant or unpleasant before the, the new brain, the young brain, you know, the sophisticated brain up here, gets anywhere close to recognizing what the experience is. So even before we know if we're breathing, or if we know if it's knee pain, or if we know that it's, you know, whatever it might be, uh, already the reptilian brain has, has uh, made that decision. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant, where it falls on that spectrum. And the Buddhist psychology uh, is in agreement with the modern science that it, this is happening continuously. That's not a faculty we can turn off. <laughs> if we have a nervous system, if we have a, a sentient body, and there's sense stimulation coming in, which it constantly is if the sense organs are working, this very old part of the brain is constantly sensing that degree of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutral. That's Vedana. And uh, the Buddha uh, particularly singled this one out in many, many teachings, that it was really pivotal, that all of our suffering really hinges on this tip of Vedana, the whole pleasure-pain conundrum. <laughs> There's a very famous teaching um, that I'm sure some of you have heard from the Salata Sutta, which is sometimes translated as the, the simile of the dart. So this is a little excerpt from it. When an ordinary person experiences pain in the body, they worry and grieve, lament, weep, and become distraught. So let's just consider that for a moment. Because <laughs> it's, it's phrased in this kind of formal language. When an ordinary person, which just means someone like us, who's not enlightened yet, that hasn't cultivated a great deal of wisdom, when an ordinary person experiences pain in the body, they worry and grieve, lament, weep, and become distraught. Okay, anybody not had this experience? <laughs> okay, this is the truth, right? This is the truth. Thus they experience two kinds of pain, physical and mental. It's as if they were hit by one dart and then again by a second dart. So that person will experience pain caused by two darts. So again, we see this. Many of you have been reporting this. <laughs> you know, we see this. There's physical discomfort that arises and we become distraught. And that's another form of pain, that's mental pain. So there's a physical pain going on and then the mental pain gets heaped on top of it. That's our habitual response. We can also see, some of you have been reporting, that it's possible for that to come to an end. That, that there is this dynamic when the mind relaxes and the distress abates some, that there's, there's less suffering. So some of us are starting to see how there's, there are these two darts that tend to hit us, but the second one is optional. Having the experience of pain, an ordinary person resists and resents it. Okay, so let's take that one into. <laughs> Having the experience of pain, an ordinary person resists and resents it. True? Yeah, true. <laughs> Thus, resistance and resentment become an underlying attitude of the mind. So as that dynamic plays out over and over again, we experience pain, we resist it. We experience pain, we resent it. We experience pain, we become distraught. As that happens over and over again, as it does throughout our lives, this uh, wears the groove in the mind, creates the tendency in the mind, the habit of mind to resist unpleasantness, to fight, to struggle with unpleasantness. Having the experience of pain an ordinary person then seeks out pleasant experiences. Check in with your own <laughs> experience. True? Yeah. And what happens when, when the body's uncomfortable? And we see this over and over and over here through the course of the day on retreat. The, either, either the mind will oblige by providing us with maybe a pleasant fantasy, pleasant memory, some pleasant planning, right? The mind will try to offer us something. Okay, here, take this instead. <laughs> or we may very actively seek out something and we may decide to go for that walk and look at the chipmunks or go have a cup of tea or go have a lie down in our room, right? So one way or another, either consciously or unconsciously, there's pain in the body, there's distress around it, suffering, and we seek out 
uh, on some level, uh, a substitute. So why is that? Because ordinary people do not know of any other escape from painful feelings except by replacing them with pleasant feelings. This, this is a good koan. Is there another option? Is there another option for coping with unpleasant feelings, physical or mental, other than seeking out some way to replace them with pleasant feelings? Thus craving and desire become an underlying attitude of the mind. An ordinary person does not understand the true nature of feelings, how they arise and pass, how they bring gratification and suffering, or how to transcend them. Thus ignorance becomes an underlying attitude of the mind. When an ordinary person experiences pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings, they feel trapped and oppressed by them. They are trapped in suffering, I say. So this dimension of Vedana that we don't even have a word for in English is really crucial. It's it's bound to arise. It's a natural part of our experience. If we're sentient beings with nervous systems, then our life will include a combination of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. No amount of meditation is going to change that. That's what it is to be an embodied sentient being. So what do we do? (laughs) Do we continue to become, you know, distressed and distraught when there's unpleasant feelings? Do we continue to try to cope with them by continuously seeking out pleasant experiences to substitute for them, which isn't always possible? Again, no amount of meditation is going to change that. No amount of meditation is going to provide us with a constant stream of pleasant experience. So what is the other alternative? We can only begin to figure that out by beginning to tune into the whole dimension of Vedana. So this is a really important and, and actually really interesting aspect of practice. You know, so there's, there's the um, question that we often ask, what's happening right now? And then there's kind of a follow-on question that we often uh, suggest exploring, which is how does the mind feel about it? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that can be really interesting to pick up on. If we, if we really tune into that, then the ignorance vanishes. There's no longer ignorance. When we, can, when we can sense just the pure experience of pleasantness, that feeling of, hmm, pleasantness also has a particular texture, a particular taste and a quality in the mind. When we can pick up on that, then there's no longer ignorance. And that whole chain of proliferation, creating suffering, this is, this is a kind of an encapsulated description of what we call dependent origination. That, that whole process doesn't flow on then when there's, when there's awareness around same thing with pain when, we're, when we can be there with the unpleasant feeling just as it is then that whole process that whole cycle of suffering doesn't continue to play out so this is another teaching that helps to point us towards uh, our empirical experience in a helpful way I think I'll just end by uh, reading you the, whole, the entirety of the, the Salata Sutta, the simile of the dart. The Buddha once addressed a group of monks. An ordinary person experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. And a wise person also experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. So what is the difference between them? When an ordinary person experiences pain in the body, They worry and grieve, lament, weep, and become distraught. Thus they experience two kinds of pain, physical and mental. It is as if they were hit by one dart, and then again by a second dart. So that person will experience pain caused by two darts. Having the experience of pain, an ordinary person resists and resents it. Thus resistance and resentment become an underlying attitude of the mind. Having the experience of pain, an ordinary person then seeks out pleasant experiences. Why is that? Because they do not know of any other escape from painful feelings, except by replacing them with pleasant feelings. Thus craving and desire become an underlying attitude of the mind. An ordinary person does not understand the true nature of feelings, how they arise and pass, 
how they bring gratification and suffering, or how to transcend them. Thus, ignorance becomes an underlying attitude of the mind. When an ordinary person experiences pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings, they feel trapped and oppressed by them. They are trapped in suffering, I say. On the other hand, when a wise person experiences pain in the body, they do not worry or grieve, lament, weep, or become distraught. They experience only one kind of pain, physical pain, but not mental pain. It's as if this person were hit by a single dart only, Having the experience of pain, a wise person does not resist or resent it. Thus, resistance and resentment do not become an underlying attitude of the mind. Having the experience of pain, a wise person does not seek out pleasant experiences. Why is that? Because they know an escape from painful feelings that does not come by replacing them with pleasant feelings. Thus, craving and desire do not become an underlying attitude of the mind. A wise person understands the true nature of feelings, how they arise and pass, how they bring gratification and suffering, and how to transcend them. Thus, ignorance does not become an underlying attitude of the mind. When a wise person experiences pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings, they do not feel trapped or oppressed by them. They are not trapped in suffering, I say. This is the difference between an ordinary person and a wise person. Let's just sit for a moment. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. So there's some time for walking now, and then please come join us for some chanting and a little more sitting. (laughs) 